0: If you would, please turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, we are in verses 5 through 13 tonight. Alright, nice big chunk, a lot in here, Um, really, really rich passage, Um, but we are going to keep it as one message tonight, ask that the Lord bless it. So please follow along, Romans 10, verses 5 through 13. bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me pray for us as we begin. God, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for the gift of salvation we have in Christ. We thank you for your promises and that we know that they are true always and forever Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work through us tonight. God, strengthen me, your servant, to speak your words and your truth. God, help me in my weakness. Lord, I pray your Spirit would speak to us and open our eyes and open our ears, open our hearts to know your truth, and that we would understand clearly and find the sweetness of your gospel. To your glory and to your praise, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I remember in high school, I always had this teacher that he'd be lecturing. Um, and most of the time, you know, as good high school students, we'd be zoning out. And every once in a while, he'd say, this is very important. And anytime he'd say it's very important, we knew, all right, whatever words he says next, we should write down because this is what's going to be on the test. And he kind of did that. That was kind of his thing. He would say, this is very important. And then that's his clue that is going to be on the test. The bad thing is then we just zoned out everything else he said. But when he said, this is very important, we said, okay. And we'd write it down. And other teachers would do similar things. I had other teachers that would say things like that. Like, you might want to write this down, or this is going to be on the test. Or other people would say, this is very important. Uh, And it, it, it was very important at the time. It was important to pass the class uh maybe when other people says things like when they're trying to give us driving directions you know before we had like gps's there was a time for gps and they this it's very important right when you get to the second left there's going to be a crooked stop sign and turn and it was important for us to hear those directions and instructions for us to get to our destination and all these times that they were important to to an extent uh and then they no longer became important right the class they said this is very important you have to write this down It was important until after the test, and then it wasn't important because I forgot and didn't care. Or it's important that you listen to these directions to drive here. It was important until we got to the destination. Then it no longer really mattered to us. I'm going to say this, that the words in this passage are very important. (laughs) But the difference with these words is that they never cease to be important but they are dealing with eternal matters. The words that are said in this passage have everlasting effects. And so I hope that you take seriously the words in this passage, as we should with all of Scripture all the time, but I want to call it out specifically tonight, the importance of these words. Now, as we're in kind of the middle of chapter 10 i'll I'll remind you that we're in the middle of chapters 9 through 11 which is really one section here and we're in the middle of paul's answer to the question of if israel is god's chosen people and if jesus is the messiah then why have so many jews rejected jesus as the messiah it's kind of this question through chapters 9 through 11 and Paul's already answered this from the divine side by explaining how it was part of God's sovereign plan and will that Israel would reject the Messiah. And now Paul shows the human side and explains how Israel has rejected their need for a Messiah to save them from their sins because of their own self-righteousness. And we looked a little bit about that last week as well. You might remember it. But this passage, verses 5-13, through 13, is just rich in doctrinal truths. And it really is a call to all non-believers. And so if you are here and you are not a Christian, I hope that you are listening. If you are not a Christian, I hope that you are listening. Because these words, these words in this passage truly are, are, are sweeter than, than honey and, and And are deeper than than, than the depths of, 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 of the ocean. And are more valuable than the riches of the world. Like really. You need these words. Not my words, but these words in scripture. And so if you're not a Christian, I hope that you are listening. If you are a Christian, I hope you're listening too. Because everything that this says still applies to you. And I hope that this passage, Christian, even for you, I hope that this will deepen your joy and will deepen your your passion and deepen your love for God as you are reminded of the great gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, so tonight we're going to look at the message of true salvation. We're going to see the heart of salvation, what what it is and what it isn't. And we're going to look at the extent of salvation. Who who is it for and what implications does it create? All right. So first, our first main section is the heart of salvation, verses 5 through 10. The heart of salvation. And as we look at the heart of salvation, we see that Paul contrasts two things. He contrasts a righteousness that is by law versus a righteousness that is by faith. Contrast those two things, a righteousness by law and a righteousness by faith. So those are going to be our two subpoints. So first, we see that righteousness based on works leads to death, verses 5 through 8. Righteousness based on works leads to death, verses 5 through 8. Let's look at verse 5. Be reminded of what he said. He said, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And what he is saying is this. For those who rely on their obedience to the law, they will be held accountable for all that the law requires. In other words, if you are counting on your own righteousness and your own works to make yourself right before God, You are counting on perfection. It's just the same as what Paul says in Galatians 3.10, where he actually quotes Deuteronomy 27.26. Let me read it for you. Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written. Now he's quoting Deuteronomy. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Let me read it again. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. See, Moses says it, Paul says it, and here we go. He's quoting it here in Deuteronomy 27, 26. That to keep the law requires that you keep it perfectly. Which is why James, now we see another author say the same thing. In two chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. So now we've seen Moses, and we've seen Paul, and now we've seen James. But really it's one author, which is God. Now why is that true? Why is it true that that... The one who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point has to be guilty of all. We'd say, well, that's not true. He's only been guilty of one. Because the law requires perfection. The law requires that you keep all of it. And one stumble of the law breaks it all. Last weekend, for the first time, I went to the Walnut Festival in Walnut Creek. I don't know why you, oh, because you went with us, that's right, <laughs> yeah, it was a great time, wasn't it, it good, yeah, thank you, Roo. yeah, so we went, um, yeah, Richard Rue joined us, I so we went with Katie and Jericho, we were walking around doing the rides, I did a ride that was interesting, and ate food that was interesting, anyways, Jericho wanted to do a game, it was one of those games where where you, you have the hammer, you, you know, you hit the thing and it dings the bell or whatever, and he wanted to do that, um, I said, okay, great, so you can do it, and, Kids win a prize no matter what, so I'm like, okay, it's it's worth the money. You're gonna get a prize. This is great. So he does. He hits it. He hits it pretty good. He doesn't hit the bell, but he gets he gets all right. And the guy, he's like, okay. You pick any prize you want. And he picks this big old inflatable sword, like like this big. I mean, it's big, inflatable sword. No. Some of you guys know that uh, we recently got a puppy. Nice. And I told him, and I told my wife. You know, probably by tomorrow, this will be done. Like, the, the, as soon as the puppy gets to it, 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 it will be broken. It, it's done with. And Katie's like, "Yeah, well, we'll just enjoy it for tonight." I'm like, "Okay, enjoy it for tonight." So he is, and he's hitting everyone at the Walnut Festival and everything, and you know, he's having a great time. Then the next day he comes, and he's playing with it. We're having a great time. We're having a sword fight. I have a little pool noodle and stuff. And somehow, it finds its way on the ground. You know, hits in, it, it, it falls on the ground, and immediately the puppy runs up to it, and just, and the tiniest little teeth, and just barely even put her mouth on it, just, and, and it's gone, right? Like, like one little bite, and I was like, I told you, now it's broken, like one little thing. I said, if she gets to it just once, it's done. Now she didn't eat it completely. It's not like she was like, and just like consumed it. It just took one puncture, one tiny puncture, and it's all broken. Just like that. (laughs) Just like that. And the same is true for the law. One puncture. And it's all broken. Nice. You see, if if your basis for salvation or, or, or 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 a right standing with God is based on your good works or keeping the law, then you must live by it. You must keep it. Perfect. Otherwise, break it once or break it a million times, it's still broken. There is no hope in keeping the law as a basis for your salvation. No matter how hard you try, you cannot be saved by a righteousness of works. Many try. In fact, every other religion tries. Even those in Christian churches try, but all will fail. There's something that that, that is built inside of us that, that just seeks to earn our way to God. There's something inside of us that, that, that thinks surely if, if I try harder, if I live better, if I do better, then at least that will make God happier with me than that, 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 if I just outright reject him. Like as long as I'm doing better than completely rejecting him, then I got a better shot. I got a better chance. And so we seek to live a life that is at least appealing to God in hopes that it earns us something with him. But what the gospel says is that if you want to be saved, you must give up all hope. Of contributing to your own salvation by what you do. And instead, trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He is the one who kept the law. All of it. The whole law. He fulfilled the law. Do you have faith in the finished work of Christ? Some, I think, some like the idea of Christ's finished work. But their faith is not in it. Maybe you say that you believe in him. But you rely on your works as well. Maybe your works are a backup. Or or, or an extra boost. Or or, or another layer that that just makes you more enticing. or, or, Or makes your salvation more secure because of how good your works are. That is not faith in Christ. That is faith in Christ plus your works. Faith in Jesus Christ says, it's 100% him. I offer nothing here. There is nothing I can do to add to my justification or even my security of that salvation. But it's all Jesus. He's the one who gives and sustains our salvation. If you are pursuing salvation based on your keeping of the law, you will be judged according to the law by the success or the failure of your effort. The problem is it's impossible to keep all the law. And so as a result, in your inevitable failure, you will receive eternal death. Righteousness based on works leads to death. So the question is, if salvation is not found and keeping the law, then where can we find it? And Paul says, we don't need to search for it. He says, we already have it. You do not need to search for that. Look what he says in verse 6 through 8. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. There are no excuses to be made. Paul is saying the answer to salvation is not found in some mystical, mysterious, miraculous sign. The answer to salvation is not found in searching deep into the heavens to bring Christ down or searching deep into the abyss to bring him up. The answer to salvation is found in Christ in which He has already revealed Himself to us. There is no additional word we need from God. There are no additional signs we need from God. All that we need for salvation has already been given to us. Do not search for what's already been revealed. If you are not a Christian, do not wait for for some sign do not wait for, for more clarity. Do, do not wait to see if there's something better or, or if you can be better. You have what you need, he says. The Messiah has come. There is salvation found in Jesus Christ, the one in whom has completed the law, the one in whom has revealed himself, who lived on earth, who died our death, and who was risen from the dead, the one in whom all Scripture is talking about. We have Jesus, and there is none better than He. And he has been revealed to you and me, and so we are without excuse. There are no excuses for your rejection of the risen Savior. Some of you are still rejecting him. Some of you are rejecting life himself. Stop waiting. Stop making excuses. Come to Jesus and place your hope and your trust in him. Do not rely on your own righteousness. All that will do is lead to death. Then secondly, we see that righteousness based on faith leads to life. Verses 9 and 10. Righteousness, based on faith, leads to life. Verses 9 and 10. If we need righteousness to be accepted by God, and if righteousness cannot be attained by keeping the law, then we say, well, then where can we gain the righteousness? Answer, through the complete work of Christ. Received by faith and credited to our account in our union with Him. Paul explains this in verse 9 and 10. He says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Paul here he shows two aspects: believing and confessing. Believing and confessing. And they are really tied together. Believing comes first. It's the first in which we experience. It, that it is, it is by faith in which we are saved. And we've seen this over and over again. Even in the book of Romans. You remember Romans 4.13. Let me turn there. What he's talking about Abraham, Romans 4.13 says, For the promise of Abraham and his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and so on. Not even Romans, think about all the scripture. Think of Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. We are not saved by works, we are saved by faith. Faith in whom? Faith in what? Faith in Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. And Paul says specifically here in this passage in Romans 10, to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. To believe in your heart, he says. To believe in your heart is is to believe in your whole being. In ancient writings, when they refer to the heart, they're talking about the very core of the person. Their their inner wills, their inner thoughts, their motives, the deepest and truest part of that person is their heart. That is what faith is, is to believe in your heart, to believe in your innermost core. It's not just this this stab in the dark of hoping that it's real. Uh, I guess this is probably the best bet. I'm going to just stab in the dark and say, yeah, Christianity. Yeah, Jesus. This is my best educated guess. That's not the faith, but it's an assurance of the truth to be fully convinced to place all hope in one basket. Jesus Christ, not Jesus and a backup plan. That's not to believe with all your heart, but to believe in Jesus. Period. No other option because no other option is needed. I know with all my heart, with my very core, that Jesus has saved me and he will save me. That is to believe with all your heart. And he says to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. We're to believe with all our heart. What? That God raised Jesus from the dead. Why does he say to believe in that? Why believe in that God raised Jesus from the dead? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so vital and is of, of, of utmost importance to the Christian. The resurrection of Christ is what all Christianity hinges on. In fact, Paul says that if Christ was not raised from the dead, then all of his preaching was in vain and our faith is in vain. He says, 1 Corinthians 15, 14. The resurrection of Christ proves that he provides salvation for his people. Had Jesus not risen from the dead, sin and death would be victorious. Not Jesus, but indeed Jesus has risen from the dead. And in his rising from the dead, we see all of his other claims are true and valid. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is victorious. Jesus is our hope and salvation. He is who he says he is. He has done what he said he has done. And he will do what he says he will do. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you? Do you personally believe? Do you believe in the person the finished work of Jesus Christ. You. Now from this belief comes confession. It's the other side of the coin. That this, this confession is confessing that Jesus is Lord, he says. That he is Lord. That he is your own personal ruling Lord. And it is him alone whom you trust for salvation. It is a personal confession and relationship. Guys, this is only between you and God. It's not your parents' confession. It's not your parents' belief. This is you and God. It's not just say this prayer. It's not just agree with these things. But it's a relationship. It's a change in your personal relationship with God. It is a personal confession of Jesus as your Lord, that he is your Lord, not just that he is the Lord, which is true. He is that he is the Lord. In fact, the word here is the same word as as Yahweh in the Septuagint, which, which would have been Paul's Bible, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the same word. So yes, Jesus is the Lord, but he's also more than that. The implication is that he is my Lord. My Lord! And if you're a Christian, he is your Lord. Personally. See, believing in a Jesus who is who is Savior but not Lord is believing in a counterfeit Jesus. And a counterfeit Jesus cannot save. True confession of Jesus is not purely just intellectual, but it affects the heart. It's not merely just to say, Jesus saves me. No, it's more than that. It's to say, Jesus owns me. He is my Savior, yes. But more than that, he is my Lord. I've quoted James 2.19 many times. But I think it's needed in this context. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You may be very aware and even believe that Jesus is the son of God. You may believe that he died for sins, that he rose from the dead, that he will come back and conquer. You may have a deep sense of guilt and shame over your sin. And you may even agree with the fact that Jesus is the only one who can remove that from you. You may believe all of that that is true. But if you do not confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you are just as far off as the demons. To confess that Jesus is Lord. Is to repent of your sins. Is to turn away from your sins. And to turn to Jesus in humble submission. As Lord. The confession. This confession says that he is king. That he is Lord. That he sovereignly rules. And that you humbly submit to him. This confession is a trust in Jesus as your Savior who has forgiven you of your sins. You understand? You need a relationship with God, a relationship that is based on your faith and confession of Him. You can have great theology, you can live a morally good life. You can admit to your own sin. You can desire eternal life. You can be committed to religious works. Does that sound like you? And yet still be destined for hell. Do you understand that? Because you do not believe in the saving work of Jesus. And you do not confess him as Lord. Because in some way you are trusting in yourself. In some way you are your own Lord. Confessing that Jesus is Lord is to have a saving relationship with him. I love how James Boyce sums this up, this section. I didn't even want to try to rewrite. He says it's so great, I think. He says, quote, If we believe in our hearts that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is both Lord and Savior, and that God raised him from the dead, and that if we confess him as Lord before other people, we will be justified by God, being forgiven of all sin, and will be saved not only now or in future days, but at the final judgment. End quote. Do you believe? Do you confess? This belief and this confession—it's based on one person, the person of Jesus Christ. Do you believe? It's it's not based on anyone else. It's not based on you. But it's all about Jesus. This belief and confession of Jesus Christ leads to life. Do you have life? It is found in Jesus Christ. So that really is, we see the heart of salvation. Next, what we see is the extent of salvation. Verses 11 through 13. We'll at two subpoints here in the extent of salvation. The first is this. That Jesus gives salvation to all who call upon his name. Jesus gives salvation to all who call upon his name. First, I want us to notice that he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. You hear that? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Jew and the Gentiles, he says in verse 12. The rich and the poor. The good and the bad and the ugly. Everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. If you are here and you are not a Christian, do not think that you are excluded from the term everyone. You are part of everyone. God is not partial. Salvation is open to all. If you are seeking salvation and you feel that you cannot come to God for whatever reason it is, know that you are wrong. And you can come to Him. Everyone means everyone. And you are part of everyone. Second, notice that He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Who calls on the name of the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord. Does that mean that you need to get His digits and then give Him a call? And say, I'm calling on you. No. No. To call upon the name of the Lord is to submit to Him in everything, in His deity, in His sovereignty, in His authority, in His power, in, in, in His Word, in His completed work. It's to say, God, I acknowledge that I have sinned against You, and I confess, I agree, I submit to Your kingship and Your authority and Your power. See, to call on His name is to admit your sin, to admit your need for Him, and to call. On him, It is to cry out to Jesus, to call upon his name and say, Jesus, save me. In my sin, I need a savior. And you're the only one who can save me. And if I don't have you, I have nothing. Save me, Jesus. I'm calling upon your name to save me. And he's the only one who can save you. And notice thirdly. And he says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. They will be saved. Do you hear that? Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. That is a promise from God. The God who never lies. The God who is the author and giver of salvation. This is his promise to you. Do you trust his promise? Do you trust God when he says this? Do you trust in him? Do you trust in the finished work of Christ and the promise of salvation found in him? Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. I mean, are there sweeter, more powerful, more more, more comforting, more assuring words than that? What other words could you possibly need to hear more than if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved? I mean, this is it. Call upon the name of the Lord. If you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian, please know that you are ignoring the one true God. That you are rejecting the risen Savior. And you are stubbornly staying on this path that leads to destruction. And so I beg you, believe in Jesus. Confess the finished work of Christ. Confess your sins and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And lastly, Jesus changes Everything. Lastly, Jesus changes everything. In these verses, we see how Jesus makes a difference, how he changes everything. I, I would summarize in this way, that, that we see a contrast between, between the Christian and the non-Christian. That Paul described what the Christian receives. And so in doing so, he, he describes what the non-Christian also receives, right? The, the difference between the two. So that's what we're going to look at. That first, we see that the non-Christian receives shame and death. We see that in verses 11 and 13. That the non-Christian receives shame and death. Verse 11, the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That means those who don't believe in him will be put to shame. And verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That means those who don't call upon the name of the Lord will not be saved. Do you see what I'm saying? Yep. So the non-Christian receives shame and death. What is this? This the shame... It's the shame on judgment day. That all of your works that you thought you had built up will be revealed as dirty rags. That all the gods and the idols that you worshipped in place of the one true God will be revealed as worthless. That all the reasons that you gave for rejecting God will be revealed as empty. So you will be left in your sin, in your guilt, in your shame, And this death is the eternal death that awaits everyone who is not in Christ. See, in contrast to the Christian being saved, the non-Christian will not be saved. And instead, they will perish. Death awaits you, non-Christian. Eternal death. The eternal wrath of God awaits you. Just as sure as the promise of God to save all who call upon his name, just as sure as that is the promise that all who are left in their sin will receive their just due penalty of eternal death. But Jesus changes everything. See, for the Christian, instead of receiving shame, what does it say here in verse 12? That they receive riches. And instead of receiving death, what do they receive? They receive life. Now, the Christian may receive shame in this world, right? And that they may be persecuted. They may be ridiculed. They may be mocked. But They will not receive shame in the last days. And they will have... The Christian will have a long list of sins. Don't get me wrong. The Christian will have a long list of sins. I found this on the web. Stop it. <laughs> not ask you, Siri. I found this on the web. The Christian will have a long list of sins in which they committed. They will have a long list of sins in which earns them eternity in hell. But on the top of that list, on the top of their giant list of sins that should say you are going to hell, instead on the top, in big bold letters, it will read paid in full. Because Jesus paid it all on the cross. And not only will the Christian be pardoned from the wrath of God, but as it says in verse 12, they will be given the riches of God. The riches of God who it says bestowing his riches on all who call him Christian you were you were not only poor but you were in debt eternally in debt but now you are rich in Christ you're rich in him i mean what can we possibly obtain on this earth that compares to the riches we have in Christ success Popularity, like comfort, fun, money, a good job, relationship, like what? They are nothing in comparison to what we possess in Jesus Christ. But do you see how Jesus changes everything? Everything. Do you see how, how apart from Jesus, if you do not have Jesus, all you have is sin and death. That's your inheritance. That's your possession. You have no hope. You have no life. You have no joy. All you have is your sin that leads to death. But then enters Jesus. And everything changes. He takes away your sin and guilt and He gives you His righteousness. He takes away your eternal death and He gives you eternal life. He takes away just an aimless life and He gives you purpose. Has Jesus made a difference in your life? Has He made a difference in your life? Has He changed everything in your life? Indeed, if you have truly believed in Jesus, if you have truly confessed Him as Lord, then the only natural response to this belief in confession is a changed heart and a changed life. Jesus changes everything. In this passage, we've seen the message of true salvation. Salvation is not found... In the righteousness of man. That is not true salvation. It's not found in keeping the law. Salvation is not found in good works. Salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. Do you believe in him? Do you confess him as Lord? If you are here tonight and you are not a Christian. My heart aches for you. And it's been aching for you all week. I've thought of some of you all week, and I prayed for you over and over, and your staff the same. And they joined me in unity and prayer for you. Because our heart aches for you. But non Christian, my, my heart is also hopeful for you. It aches because I know that you have rejected Christ. It aches because I know you have not experienced the true joy of knowing Jesus as your Savior and Lord. It aches because I know that you are destined to the eternal wrath of God. But I am hopeful. I am hopeful because I know that salvation is open to you. I am hopeful because I know that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so my prayer has been and my prayer is that you would be saved because there is nothing that you need more than to be saved by jesus christ now there are some in this room who are saved there are some in here who are genuinely in the faith who are Christians, and thanks be to god right thanks be to god for the gracious work that he has done in your life christian You were not saved because of your keeping of the law. You were not saved because because you're better than the non Christian. You were saved because God, in His divine sovereignty, chose you to be saved. That's why. Because He has granted you faith to believe, and by His grace, you have called upon His name. Christian, are you thankful for the grace of God? Are you thankful? Are you thankful for the gift of salvation found in Jesus Christ? Don't ever grow tired of the gospel. Don't ever grow tired of the gospel. But keep it afresh in your heart. That your love for Jesus grows every day because you realize more and more how undeserving you are of His love and how great and magnificent His love is for you. Let that continue to grow. And let this love change everything in your life, Christian. Let this love fuel your fire to live for him in all things. Because you are so overwhelmed by his love for you. As we close here tonight, as we do every once in a while, I'd like us just to end in silent prayer. A couple minutes, it's going to be quiet. It's going to be silent. It may feel awkward. That's okay. I want everyone to take time to think of these things, to pray to the Lord. If you're not a Christian, ask that God would give you faith to believe and that you would confess Him as Lord. Ask that He would save you. If you are a Christian, remember these truths of the gospel. Give Him thanks for what He has done for you. Be overwhelmed by his love and his grace and let that love change everything in your life to live for him. Just take a couple minutes of silent prayer, and then I'll close this in prayer.